0: y'all can have a seat, our preschoolers, y'all can make your way out. We've got our teachers, Mr. Corey, Ms. Chandler, heading toward the door. Y'all find them, head on out. The rest of us, if you're staying in here with me, you are going to need a Bible. So I want to invite you to get one out and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, um, right here at the beginning as you're making your way to Luke chapter 18, I, I do want to make note of a couple resources. Um, if you uh, leave here with nothing other than these two resources, I promise you, you will you will benefit from them. Uh, one of them is, is probably really familiar to you. It's a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, You're going to notice throughout the sermon, I typically don't use a ton of quotes in my sermons. I find them to be a little bit distracting, more than they are helpful. Um, But uh, I do have about, I don't know, 15 or 20, no, it's not that many. But I have a lot of quotes from C.S. Lewis in our sermon today. And they come directly, not just from the book Mere Christianity, but from one chapter in that book. It's chapter 8, if you have a copy, it's called The Great Sin. The Great Sin is the name of that chapter. But if you don't have a copy of Mere Christianity, it should be required reading of every Christian. So I want to encourage you to to get a copy of that. Another book that is more modern and and more accessible and a lot shorter is this little little guy right here. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a book uh, written by Tim Keller. No one has influenced my thinking on, on the topics that we're going to be covering today like Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis. If you read their stuff and you listen to this sermon, it's going to sound similar. Hopefully it's not plagiarized. It wasn't intentionally. Um, so, uh, but I, I am heavily, heavily influenced by uh, Lewis and Keller. Mere Christianity, especially Chapter 8, The Great Sin, and The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I want to encourage you to get a couple copies of those. Um, we are in the middle of a sermon series that we are calling Gospel Culture. So if you're visiting with us for the first time today, we're not going to have a uh, traditional Mother's Day sermon. Um, We're actually going to be talking about pride. Happy Mother's Day. Um, so we're going to be talking about pride and humility. We're, we're in the middle of this series, Gospel Culture. If you are visiting with us, I'm thankful you, you are kind of getting a, a glimpse into where we're heading as a church, what we are trying to build here, what we're trying to become. We are trying to develop a church culture that reflects and resembles the person and work of Jesus. We want the, the way of life in our church to be characteristic of the gospel That we believe. And two weeks ago we introduced what this concept is from Galatians chapter 2 and we saw that a gospel culture is a way of life in the church that reflects and is characteristic of the gospel of Jesus Christ or in the words of Paul it is a church culture that is in step with the truth of the gospel. And last week we talked about, okay, well, if we want to, to, you know, journey towards something like this, if we want to cultivate and grow a culture like this, what is it going to take? And and we broke down Galatians 2 once again, and we saw that what it's going to take is gospel plus safety plus time. We need multiple exposures to the gospel in a safe environment with much time in order to grow in the likeness of Jesus in our church. Well, today... We are beginning to unpack three primary characteristics of a gospel culture. So if our church embodies the gospel, what will we see? What will we experience? And and we're mainly going to see and experience three things. Humility, love, and holiness. Now, I'm not sharing these gospel culture markers or characteristics in order to give you some exhaustive list of, of everything that we will see in a church that's living in step with the gospel. I can't cover all of that. What, what I want to do is, is share these three primary characteristics because we need two things. We need a goal and we need a metric. Okay, if we're actually going to start building a church culture in which Jesus can be seen, we need both a goal and a metric. What should you be trying to become as a Christian. How do you live the Christian life? What are you, what are you aiming for? What, what are you shooting for? Um, what, what, what about our church? You know, what should our church be trying to become communally? And the characteristics of humility, love, and holiness give us something to aim for. But they also serve as a metric. How can we tell? We all want the gospel to, to be filling our church. We all want to be in step with the truth of the gospel. How do we know if we're doing it or not? How do we know if we're actually in step with the gospel or not? How can we tell if our church is, is, is in step with the gospel or not? Well, we will see humility, love, and holiness in our attitudes and in our relationships when the gospel has taken root. So it's sort of a metric. We're able to look, okay, do we see humility? Do we, do we see love? Do we see holiness in our church? Okay, we do see those things. We're probably pursuing Christ. If we don't see those things, maybe we need to recorrect. We're going to look at a very familiar parable of Jesus this morning to see why humility in particular is a primary characteristic of a gospel culture. Now, this, this parable is about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and a lot of us are probably familiar with this story. Two characters are introduced, one at a time. It's such a powerful story. It's really short, but it's so powerful. First, the Pharisee takes the stage. Now, the Pharisees were religious rock stars in this day. They were experts. They were an expert's expert. They knew the law. They knew the Bible like no one else. And they pursued godliness with burning passion. And their zeal for the law and the purity of Israel is, is famous. You might say infamous in, in some senses. You remember uh, Paul and his zeal to protect the integrity of, of the law itself. It led him to to persecute Christians. He was a Pharisee. Well, in his self-righteous pride, this Pharisee in this story from Jesus, he prays and he thanks God. But how does he thank God? He thanks God that he's not like others who he believes are clearly inferior to him. Well, then second, the spotlight in the story immediately turns to the tax collector Now, few people were more despised in Jesus' day than tax collectors. Few people were more respected than Pharisees. Few people were more despised than tax collectors. Tax collectors were hated as much, maybe even more, than the Roman rulers themselves. That's because tax collectors were viewed as traitors to the Jewish people. They, They did the predatory bidding of the Romans. They They often took advantage of their fellow Jews for their own benefit, and they were viewed as completely, totally, morally bankrupt. And and we see this in the Pharisees' list of those that he is not like. Did you notice it? He says, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Here are some examples. Let me give you a list of people I'm glad I'm not like. Extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, and this tax collector. That's, that's the company that a tax collector would fit in at that time. But then Jesus says that the tax collector prayed very differently from the Pharisee. Standing far off. Beating his chest. Not even able to look toward heaven. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now you're probably familiar with that story. But there are two phrases that often get ignored in this parable and it's one comes at the beginning and one comes at the end but we don't need to neglect them or think that they're you know inconsequential to the the parable and to our sermon this morning Um, actually these two phrases help us see that both this parable and a gospel culture are about pride and humility look look first of all at what Luke adds at the beginning of the parable who is this parable for Who's it for? Luke tells us. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, this parable is directed at those who are eaten up with pride. And then at the end of the parable, how does Jesus conclude it? How does he conclude things? He concludes with a lesson. He says... Based on the Pharisee's prayer and based on the tax collector's prayer, here's the lesson. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, these are the clues to interpreting this parable. These are the clues to understanding the impact the gospel should have on our church's culture. Humility is both the key to understanding God's grace in the gospel And it is the communal product of a church that really gets the gospel. You will see humility. So we're going to use this parable to to see how in a gospel culture, pride is uprooted and humility is planted. And I'm going to do that by giving individual attention to the Pharisee and then the tax collector and show you three things. First, why we need humility, if you're a note taker. First, why we need humility. Second, what humility is and does. What it is how it functions what it does and then finally where we get it where do we get humility where does it come from okay well first why do we need it before we can start thinking or talking about humility and the impact that it has on a church's culture we have to see why we need humility in the first place why is it important why should we pursue it at all why does it matter The answer is that we are all, everyone in this room, by nature, eaten up with pride. And humility is the, not one of many, it is the only antidote. We can't even begin to grow in humility until we see very clearly that we are prideful. C.S. Lewis, here's quote number one. Someone get a tally for me and see how many I have. I can't remember. C.S. Lewis put it this way. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. So before we think about humility, let's think about pride. Pride we're going to say a couple things about it. First, pride begins in a surprising place, something you don't think about, with an obsession with the self. That's where pride begins. It doesn't first begin in any kind of way toward God or toward other people. Pride begins with an obsession with the self. Pride is by nature self-centered. And we see this in the Pharisees' prayer. It's, it's a really strange prayer, isn't it? I mean... It's, it's, not even, it's less of a prayer and more of like a self-congratulation. Isn't it, isn't it odd, the, the words that he uses? And, and it's ironic, not just in the fact that he's praising himself in a prayer to God. I mean, my goodness, that's, that is bad enough. If any of our elders ever come up here and they begin their prayer... Oh, God, I just thank you so much that I am so righteous. Thank you. Thank you so much that I am not like him. I'm not like her. Like, boo them off the stage. You know, that is just, it cannot be tolerated. So it's it's ironic in the sense he's praising himself in a prayer to God, but it's also ironic in where he's standing. He's standing in the temple. The temple should have been a very humbling place to be because it was in the temple where the presence and glory of God dwelled. And so to enter the temple and praise yourself, it's unthinkable. And yet here's a Pharisee who knows more about the temple than anyone else, and he begins his prayer like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And so, yeah, lots of issues with this prayer, but the the biggest issue is the most frequent word in the prayer. You know what the most frequent word in the prayer is? I. That's the biggest issue. That's the starting place of pride. It begins with an obsession with the self. Pride expresses itself in so many different ways. But in every single expression of pride, it is always focused on the self. Sometimes pride expresses itself in self-exaltation and arrogance. That's how we typically think of prideful people. Someone who's bragging about their accomplishments. But pride also expresses itself in self-pity. Where you just you, just, you're, you know you're, you have self pity for you have pity for yourself oh woe is me woe is me and you, you're talking you end up talking so much about yourself even though you're not bragging about anything you you are lamenting so many things and it's all focused on you you're obsessed with yourself in either a positive way or a negative way both expressions are self centered attitudes and you know that pride is operating in your heart when you are thinking about yourself a lot. Something happens in the church, something happens at work, something happens in your home, and you immediately start thinking about how it like, affects you and how it relates to you. It's your mind first goes to, to you and not, and not another person. Pride draws our thoughts and concerns and our cares inward. And so before the Pharisee looked down on other people, you saw what he did first. He was first obsessed with himself. His prayer begins, look at me, God. Look at me. I've just, you know, Lord, I've just noticed how righteous I've become. Look at me. Look at me. That's, that's where pride begins with an obsession with the self. Well, if, if it begins with, with this self-centered perspective and attitude, it leads to a very specific action. Pride leads to competition with others. If you're obsessed with yourself, when you encounter other people, pride competes and pride compares. You see, the pride of the Pharisee led him to not just desire righteousness before God. His desire is not to be righteous for the sake of being righteous. That's a good thing. It's a good desire. It's good for the Pharisee to want to be righteous. We should want to be righteous before God. But do you see how pride hijacks his good desire and uses it for spiritual destruction? Pride led the Pharisee to desire and find pleasure, not just in being righteous, but in being more righteous than other people, thank God, I'm not like them. Thank God, I'm more righteous than them. This competition, this comparison, is the only way that pride can be satisfied. Lewis again had us two, by the way. Lewis again says pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. You see, we have this insatiable impulse as humans to compare ourselves to to one another. And we do it within the church. This isn't just something that happens on social media or at work. It happens right here in the church. We compare ourselves to others. we either begin with a belief that we are superior to other people, or we begin with a belief again, this self-obsession. we begin with a belief that we are inferior to other people. we, we just we don't measure up. oh well, you know we, we, we don't measure up to others. and this obsession with self leads to an unhealthy comparison with other people, and this is how pride comes to dominate our lives and infect the culture of our church it becomes second nature it is an impulse where you hear something about someone else and you immediately compare yourself to them in one way or another you could hear someone is going through something really bad and people show them sympathy and you have this like really disgusting feeling in your heart like well I mean I guess, you know, my, I guess my life's not that bad. I shouldn't, I just shouldn't complain. You have self-pity. I really shouldn't be complaining about this hard thing that I have in my life. Look what that person's going through. And it's this weird, like, you know, you're comparing your, your struggles or your, or your sorrows. Or on the other hand, it's like, you know, this person received really good news and you struggle to be happy for them because, you know, you're, you're comparing their experience of the world to your own and comparison becomes this impulse for us. Here's how it works in the church. If we're serving a lot in the church, Man, you're, you're serving your tail off. You, you sign up for stuff all the time. You're always there. You, you want to be involved. You are deeply committed. You don't just find satisfaction in that, in serving. You compare yourself to another person. And you wonder why everyone else isn't just as committed as you are. You know, oh, our church would be so much better if everyone was just as committed as me. Thank God, you don't pray this, but thank God I'm not like them. If only they could be more like me. Or if, if you give really faithfully of your finances, you're not just grateful that, that God has been generous to you and you're content with your generosity to others and you just you just find joy in that. No, you, you compare yourself to other people. And you think, if only, if only everyone else would match my generosity, then look what we could do. Look what, how much ministry we could do if other people would. Or you just find joy in the fact that, you know what, I, I, I'm probably giving more faithfully than some other people in our church. That's pretty cool. You know, God, look at me. Thank God I'm not like them. It happens in the church. If you're hospitable, you invite people into your home, you welcome them in, you, you, you have them over for dinner. You don't just find joy in that. You're not just happy to have people in your life. You compare yourself to other people and you think, thank God I'm not like those people who never invite anybody over. How does the Pharisee's attitude, thank God I'm not like them, play out in your life? How's it playing out? We all have, and if you think to yourself, well, actually, I have never had an attitude like this at all. Thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. Well, now you have one. Write it down. Um Regardless of its specific expression, pride is naturally competitive. It pits us against one another. It constantly compares. It creates enemies out of friends. It leads us to either believe we are superior or that we don't measure up. And whether arrogance or self-pity, pride will suck the life out of our church by eroding our relationships down to competition and comparison. Pride is dangerous. Now, what does it do to a church culture can pride infect a church culture so that the cultural norm in the church is pride absolutely it can and here's the tricky thing about pride it's very deceptive very deceptive by nature none of us want to admit that we are prideful you know why because we're prideful our pride won't let us do it our pride will not allow us to admit that we're prideful and nothing is easier Listen how it works. This is how deceptive pride is. You can't see it in yourself, but there's nothing easier to see in someone else. Oh, look how arrogant they are. Look how prideful they are. Oh, they're just wallowing in self-pity, and you can't see it in yourself, but it's so clear in someone else. It's so deceptive. Because of this, pride is camouflaged in the culture of a church. Pride is obvious, and it is hidden at the same time. Look, that makes it especially dangerous. Pride can destroy the culture of a church. And here's how. Uh, again, not exhaustive, just a few examples. First, pride creates a culture of hypocrisy. A culture of hypocrisy. Not just, you know, you, got, you know, that person may be hypocrite. No, a culture of hypocrisy, where it's the default. It's, it's the norm in, in a church, hypocrisy. Because pride is self-obsessed, we're often too embarrassed to be honest about our flaws or our failures. Pride will lead us to rejoice in grace from God without extending grace to others. Or we know that others will look down on us if we're honest about who we are, so we just pretend like everything's okay and we keep quiet. Or we want to keep up appearances so bad that we can't fathom admitting that we have sinned. Isn't it crazy? You can have a church that, that, you know, is together for years, and you never, ever hear about how another person in the church has sinned. And it almost becomes this, you know, uh, strange phenomenon where every single week you admit together we're sinners, but you never know how anyone else is a sinner. And, and, and you would not dare admit to someone else, yeah, I really, man, I really messed up here. That's when pride has infected a church and it creates a culture of hypocrisy. Instead, what we do is we talk about our list of those we are not like. Or we talk about our religious resume all the while hiding the truth of our sin. It creates a culture of hypocrisy. Pride also creates a culture of shame because it's competitive. Pride is competitive. And we want to be superior to other people, which means we will look down on those that we consider to be inferior. People who make life choi- choices that we don't agree with. They're, they're not just different, they're worse. Oh, Thank God we did not send our kids to public school like they did. Thank God we're not like those homeschoolers. You see what it is? <laughs> Somebody. <funny>. Um, <laughs> Pride leads us to shame other people for their choices or their failures. Pride shames people for their past. Pride holds grudges in the future. Pride will not allow you to let something go. And I, and I, don't, I, don't, mean, I don't mean something, you know, severe, abuse, something like that. Like, hey, you know, you're, you're struggling to get over that. Won't you stop being prideful? No, no, it's not, it's not that. But pride will not allow you to let something go. You would rather go the rest of your days shaming another person for something they've done than let something go. It's, it's just, that's what pride does. Pride also creates a culture of arrogance. Oh man, this is so dangerous. Because it feels so good. And the fact that it feels so good should scare us to death. When we evaluate the health of our church by comparing our church to other churches, That's so dangerous. Have you ever said, thank God our church isn't like that church. Thank God we don't do this or we don't do do that like those churches. This is not noble. This is pride. It creates a culture of arrogance. And finally, it creates a culture of bitterness. You can't be both prideful and joyful. Pride robs you of joy. Bitterness and misery will follow you all the days of your life if you remain tethered to pride. Because pride begins with self-obsession and it leads to comparison with others. We can't rejoice with those who rejoice. Can't do it. Someone shares good news in life group, you immediately compare yourself to them. We, we, We may be bitter because we feel God has answered a prayer for someone that he hasn't answered for us. We may be bitter because life is just hard for us right now and we're envious of someone else's joy. Pride makes it impossible for you to find joy in someone else. And if you've ever doubted the power and deception of pride, you probably were tempted just now as I went through those examples of hypocrisy, shaming, arrogance, and bitterness. You've probably thought of examples of that in other people and not yourself. It's how we're we're hardwired. Pride is so powerful. Pride functions like this in a church culture because it is essentially the anti-gospel. Think about it. In pride, you exalt yourself. You find righteousness in yourself and you belittle other people. Whereas in the gospel, we see that God has saved us by his grace through the work of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus descended to take on human flesh and die a sinner's death. But through pride, we ascend And we assume a place that is reserved for God alone as we're relying on our own works for righteousness and taking a place of judgment toward other people. Pride is dangerous. It creates a church culture that is not in step with the gospel. And that's why we need humility. That's why we need humility. And that's why we will find it wherever the gospel goes. Because in the words of Lewis again, I forget where we are, three. Lewis again In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That's so why we need, we need humility, because of pride. Second, let's think about this. What is humility? Okay, if, that, if that's pride, and we don't want, we don't want our church to be, to be characterized by pride, we want it to be characterized by humility, let's think about what humility is and what it does. Maybe the central characteristic of a gospel culture is humility. Where the gospel goes, humility follows. And when the way of life in our church is directed and fueled by God's grace, we will see humility begin to sprout. Now, humility, in contrast with pride, humility begins with an accurate evaluation of yourself in light of God and others. Okay, I'll say, I'll say that again. That's, that's basically what humility is. Humility, it's, it's actions and attitudes that are consistent with an accurate evaluation of yourself in light of God and other people. You see, while the Pharisee had this inflated evaluation of himself, look how great I am, look at me, the tax collector knew himself very well. He could not stand out in the open near the temple, draw attention to himself, and then congratulate himself on being more righteous than other people. And you know why he couldn't do that? Because he knew it wasn't true. It wasn't true. And instead, the tax collector simply says, This is his prayer. This is it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is humility. This this is what counts before God. And and don't miss Jesus' obvious lesson here. The obvious lesson is be like the tax collector when you approach God, not the Pharisee. Be like the tax collector, not the Pharisee. And conventional wisdom actually says the opposite. That if you're going to approach the presence of an all-powerful, holy God, then you need to present the best version of yourself so that he will be impressed with you, so so that you will measure up, so that you'll be accepted. But that's not how the gospel works. The only ones who go home justified, who receive favor and forgiveness and acceptance from God, are those who accurately evaluate themselves before God and others. Only the humble will be exalted, Jesus says. And this is why I love the gospel, and this is why I want us to build a church culture that is infused with the gospel. Because in this place, as we're drawing near to God, we're not doing so because we've figured everything out and cleaned our lives up. Instead, we draw near to God and become more like him by readily admitting what a mess we've made of our lives. I want to be in a culture where every church member gets that, where where so much transformation can happen when we embrace this. The Pharisee, What's he do? He lists off his religious resume. I've fasted and I've tithed more than is even required of me. Look at me, God. Aren't I so awesome? The tax collector listed off his religious resume. I'm a sinner. God, look at me and please be merciful because I a sinner. That's what I bring to the table. The tax collector believed that he was a sinner, desperate for God's mercy, that his righteousness could only be found in God, not himself. And this belief is seen in his prayer, his attitudes, his actions, his disposition. Bleed gospel. He embodies a culture that's in step with the truth of the gospel. And Jesus says, "In him, we are meant to see humility. This is where humility begins." You accurately evaluate yourself in light of God and other people. When you see that you're a sinner, that God is in every respect immeasurably superior to you, you stop looking down on other people. You know why? It's kind of hard to look down on anyone when you're at the bottom. So in order for humility to spread in our church, we have to know ourselves rightly and we have to know God (laughs) rightly. Now, this leads to some specific actions. In the same way that pride led to comparison, humility leads to putting others before yourself. That's what humility leads to in in a church or anywhere, to putting others before yourself. Paul says in Philippians 2, he gives a definition of humility, and he says that humility is counting others more significant than yourself. When you know yourself and you know God, it makes this possible. Being humble before God leads you to be humble before others. Putting God before yourself leads you to put others before yourself. And again, I love how C.S. Lewis, I've lost count at this point, describes a humble person. This is so amazing. If you haven't listened to any other quotes, you've zoned out, please listen to this one. C.S. Lewis describes a humble person. And he says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, that he will be what most people call humble. He will not always be telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably, all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. And if you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little bit envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Isn't that great? The truly humble person doesn't go on and on about his own humility. The humble brags that you see on social media, oh, man, I'm just so humbled. And then you just brag about something that you did that you accomplished. You know, that, that's not humility. The truly humble person is genuinely interested in other people. I can think of a few examples in our faith family of people I'm just like, you know, this, that's a humble person when you think of it like that. Like anytime time I'm talking to them, they are just all in with me. They want to know about me. They're interested in me. They're concerned. They, they, they laugh with me. They rejoice with me. You know, they don't turn every conversation back to themselves. It's, it's, it's always about me. That's, that's what a humble person does. Instead of exalting themselves, humble people lift others up. And this is what happens when other people are more important to you than you are to yourself. It's what happens when other people are counted it's more significant than yourself. Now, what does humility do in the culture of a church? What does it do? What impact does it have? What happens when we are collectively counting each other as more significant than ourselves? When we have a humble church culture, we see specific actions. And again, not exhaustive, just three examples. Three examples here. In a gospel culture, we are honest. We're honest. Humility creates the possibility of honesty in a church. There's no reason to pretend we're something we're not because we all know that no one here is superior to anyone else. How do we know that? Humility teaches us that. Confession and repentance of sin will become normal and expected because we won't be shocked to learn that someone in our church has messed up. We know that we are all sinners desperate for God's mercy. I, I, was, I was talking to somebody in the church earlier uh, this week just a little bit about, and I've heard this from other people as well, anyone who has gone through rehab or anyone who has gone through, you know, AA, uh, especially a Christian. When a Christian goes through that, there's a, actually a common takeaway, and it's, I wish there was this kind of community in my church. A person who goes to rehab, a person who goes to AA, they're like, I wish, I wish I experienced this kind of community in the church. Tr- Do you know why there's so such a deep level of community in, in places like that? The same way, very different scenario, the same reason there's so much community in like, you know, football stadiums basketball arenas. Because it is abundantly clear we're all in the same boat. Abundantly clear. We're all in the same boat. So, you know, we went to a Mississippi State football game wearing our Kentucky blue, boy, we were not welcome. That was brutal. That was, but it was cool to see. I'm like, man, y'all just in unison. You got those bells rolling, son, like, you know. And it's uh, so much joy and happiness because you're all on the same team. You're all, you all want the same things. You're the same people, okay. In, in, in uh, rehab, in AA, those people, everyone in the room recognizes we, we all, we're all struggling. We all need help. And there's no hiding. There's no hiding it whatsoever. In the church, that's more difficult because when you look across this room, you don't first see someone who's just like you. You notice the differences, Ah man there's not that many people here my age or you know there's not many people here in my season of life I don't know you notice all the differences of the people you talk to people like oh man my personality is just not really jiving that's pride do you know what humility does humility creates the possibility for us to look around this room and say oh man these are my people we're all on the same boat we're all on the same boat we're all sinners in need of grace See, humility creates honesty so that we're able to to, uh, admit together we're all desperate for God's mercy. But in a gospel culture, we don't just show honesty, we also show honor. In a gospel culture, there's no room for shame because we're counting others as more significant, more important than ourselves. We'll look for ways to honor one another. Every church member here is in a place of honor and dignity, no matter your past, because God says so in Christ. So, we'll treat each other with respect and dignity that a person in a high place deserves. When you're elevating someone and you're counting someone as more important than yourself, you won't shame them whenever they do something that they shouldn't do. Instead, you will find ways to honor and support and love and encourage them. So, a gospel culture is full of encouragement and respect. We rejoice when others rejoice. And you know why we're rejoicing? Not because we happen to be having a good day. We compared things and we said, well, you know, we're, we're good now. No, we're rejoicing with them because they're rejoicing. <laughs> That's why. They're, they're happy. We're happy that they're happy. This is showing honor. And then finally, in a gospel culture, we serve. In a gospel culture, we're honest. We show honor. And in a gospel culture, we serve. Humility creates this. It empowers our service. If we count other people more significant than ourselves, then service of others will become normal and expected. We'll meet one another's needs. We will care what happens to each other. We will sacrifice of ourselves for the good of other people in our church. Okay, um, one, one more one more thing I want you to see. So, so we've we've talked about pride. We've talked about humility. Where does humility come from? Because pride is so, so natural to us, and humility is something that we have, to, we have to intentionally pursue. Where do we get it? Do we get it by just reading the Bible a lot and learning a lot of wisdom? We can learn a lot of wisdom. I hope you've learned some things today. But where's the power for this type of church culture come from? Where, where, where's the humility? Why are we able to say, no, humility is actually a characteristic of a gospel culture? Why does it work this way? Jesus is the key. He's the key. His humility is the key to ours. There should be nothing more surprising, joyfully surprising, but surprising to you than the humility of Jesus. Though a king, he took the form of a servant. Though deserving of being served, he came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus renounced his rights. For the good of others. He counted others more significant than himself. He thought of others more. And he thought of himself less. He made no prerequisites for those he served. He emptied himself for the good of others. He served both his friends and his enemies. Theologian Mark Jones put it this way. There has never been a greater humiliation of a person than that of Jesus. No one has ever descended so low. Because no one has ever come From so high. And if Jesus. Who possessed more glory. And had more of a right to say. Thank God I'm not like other men. No one had more of a right to say that than Jesus. And if he humbled himself. Then who are we to exalt ourselves. The power to a humble life. The power to a humble church culture. The power to a life of honesty and honor, joy and service, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we know that we're saved, not by our own strength or performance, but by Jesus's, we can't claim superiority over any other sinner in this room. Jesus humbled himself, Paul tells us, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, church, let's, Refuse to obsess over ourselves, caring more about our own reputation than our relationships with others in the church. Let's refuse to compare ourselves to each other and be in competition with each other. Let's refuse to look down on others as if we are better. And instead, let's cultivate a gospel culture, a culture that is marked by humility, in which we count other people more significant than ourselves in this type of culture. Joy will not just be a possibility. It will become contagious. Let me pray for us. Father, we are um, honestly really convicted by that parable. And the conviction comes in with the impulse to to judge the Pharisee, ironically enough. And, and we somehow feel like we identify more with the tax collector than we do the Pharisee. And we need to have a clear realization that we struggle the same way that the Pharisee did, that we have pride that is beating on the doors of our heart. And that it infects us, and that it can infect our church culture. Would you help us to be aware of the danger and deception of pride? And as we are recognizing our pride, may that lead us to the place that the tax collector arrived at. And we beat our chests, not even able to look toward heaven, and admit to you with full honesty that we are sinners and beg you for mercy. And we're grateful that you have provided mercy through Jesus. And may the power of his example of humility and the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit create a culture of humility here so that we will reflect Jesus to one another and to our city. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.